Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Director of Missions Mobilization, Dave Harden. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Good morning, River Bluff family. It is good to be gathered together as we continue in worship through the preaching of the word. Pastor Joe is recovering, but still not quite well enough to come up here and preach, so I'm filling in again this Sunday. Please be praying for Pastor Joe's uh, recovery and his um, being brought back to complete health. Last week, as we, we looked at the idea of this cosmic battle that is one of the major themes throughout all of Scripture, this cosmic battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. And how this battle is taking place, we see it played out all through Scripture. When we come to the end of the Scripture, we know who wins that battle, our our good and great and mighty and awesome God. But in the midst of this battle, God makes a promise, a promise to send his king to redeem and restore his kingdom here on earth. And... As we took a look at that, we focused on the book of Matthew, and in the gospel of Matthew, Matthew himself, writing to this Jewish audience, lays out proof after proof after proof, giving evidence to the fact that Jesus Christ indeed is that promised king who has come to bring God's kingdom to bear on earth. And as we're... um, continuing to lay out the context for the gospel of Matthew as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. What I want to take a look at today is how this kingdom that Jesus is bringing that was promised by God is a kingdom of God's grace. And this is helpful for us to know and understand so that when we do get into the Sermon on the Mount, it helps us to understand what's going on there within the context of this kingdom of God's grace, as opposed to a kingdom that's not of God's grace. And so with that today, I want to take a look at this idea of the kingdom that the Jews were expecting. The Jews, even in Jesus' day, were expecting a kingdom that they had read about all through the prophets. This kingdom that would bring to them peace and joy, that their land would be restored to them. This kingdom would be a kingdom of justice and righteousness and perfect love. This kingdom would bring God himself to live in their presence and rule and reign over them as their king. And this is the kingdom that the Jews were expecting. Jesus, as he comes on the scene, says, in and through me, the kingdom of God is at hand. But it's a little bit different than that kingdom that the Jews were expecting. Yes, it is going to be a kingdom of peace and joy and perfect love. Yes, it is going to be a kingdom of truth in righteousness, in justice, but it's going to come in an altogether different way than what the Jews 
had anticipated and what they were expecting. They were expecting God's king to come in and do away with their enemies. At that time, the Romans who were ruling and reigning over them and then restore their, their kingdom to, to Israel itself. But that's not what happens in Scripture. And so let's take a look at that, this today. We get this picture of this kingdom all throughout the prophets in the Old Testament. And I want to take a look at just one of those kingdom promises. This is just a, a snapshot, if you will, of the kingdom that the Jews are expecting. And let's take a look at Isaiah chapter 61. I want to read um, the whole chapter, 11 verses. And so Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priest of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring. The Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. So here, just in Isaiah 61, is, is a great picture of this promised kingdom that God is promising to bring through his chosen king. Look at that. Wouldn't you want to be a part of that kind of kingdom? A kingdom of justice, a kingdom of righteousness, a kingdom of joy, a kingdom of peace, a kingdom of prosperity. All that is what the Jews were expecting. 
as God rules and reigns over them in their life. But you see, there's a problem. The Jews had a problem, and their problem is their sinful nature. In their sinful nature, which they inherited from Adam, is a nature that does not want God to rule and reign over them. Their sinful nature is such that they want to have control. They want to be the masters of their own life. They want to be their own God. Their sinful nature fights against God's rule and reign. So as much as they long for and hope for this incredible kingdom that's laid out all throughout the prophets, they have an incredible problem because when it comes down to it, they really don't want God to rule and reign over them because of this sinful nature. And we see in the Old Testament, God makes a covenant relationship between himself and his people Israel at that time. And in this covenant relationship, what God does is he exposes their sinful nature to them. Because God calls them in this covenant relationship to obey all his commands perfectly, each and every one of them. And there were over, there were 613 commandments that they were given there at Mount Sinai that they were to perfectly follow in order to be in this right relationship with God, in order to continue in this right relationship with God and to find his favor upon them. But the problem is their sinful nature didn't want that, didn't want to follow God's rules and commands. Their sinful nature wanted to do their own thing. And we see this, the beginning of this um, old covenant, what we might call the law of Moses, um, play out in Exodus chapter 19. So if you'll turn to Exodus 19 with me. We're going to take a look at verses 1 through 8 of Exodus 19. Let me go ahead and read this. This is the context for this. Israel had been, the people of Israel had been enslaved in Egypt. God comes and miraculously frees them from slavery in Egypt, calls Moses to lead them out of the land of Egypt, into this land that God would be promising them. And shortly after they leave Egypt, they come to Mount Sinai in the wilderness of Sinai. Let me read verses 1 through 8. It says, On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out for, from Rephidim, and they came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, 
You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So God has given Moses these words and says, I want you to take them back down to the people of Israel. But there's one small word in there that's key to understanding that. And it's a two-letter word, if. If you obey me, if you keep my commands perfectly, then you will be my people, my treasured possession among all the peoples of the earth. Verse 7 says, So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. The people said, we're going to do all that God commands us to do. We're going to obey God perfectly. But what they didn't understand is they couldn't. They had a sinful nature that did not want to keep God's commands. They could not keep God's commands that are given um, in the following chapters here in Exodus, starting with Exodus 20 and the giving of the Ten Commandments. In all these 613 rules and regulations and commands. Yeah, we'll do it, God. But they didn't understand that their sinful nature really wouldn't allow them to do it. Really didn't want to do that. But God gives these commands and calls Israel into this covenant relationship with himself. Knowing that they couldn't do that. Knowing that... What this would do is expose their sinful nature to them. Showing them that they couldn't keep God's commands. Showing them that they really didn't want to keep God's commands in the, under the old covenant. And so this covenant relationship that they enter into with God is meant to show them they can't do it. And therefore they need somebody or something outside of themselves that will help them to follow God's rules and regulations and enter into a right relationship with him and find his favor upon them. That's why this old covenant was given. That's why the law of Moses was given, to show them they can't do it, that they don't want to do it, and they need help. And so, as much as we talk about the kingdom of God, his rule and reign over his people, we see that sinful nature doesn't want to have God ruling and reigning over his people. In fact, sinful nature won't allow it, won't stand for it. God knew that all along. That wasn't a surprise to him. And God, in his grace then, makes a promise that we find once again in the prophets. A promise of a new covenant relationship. A promise of a new covenant relationship that will not be based solely upon their strict and complete obedience to all of God's commands. 
a new covenant relationship that's rooted in God's grace towards his people. I want to take a look at a couple passages that kind of bring out the truth of this new covenant promise that God says he will one day bring about. Let's take a look first at Jeremiah chapter 31. I want to take a look at verses 31 through 34. And here, the prophet Jeremiah, God has given him these words, these words of this new covenant promise. So Jeremiah chapter 31, starting with verse 31, says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. God's saying, I'm going to put my commands, my rules, my regulations, my law within them. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. This is incredible. God's saying, I'm going to do a new thing. I'm going to make a new covenant between myself and my people. And it's going to be rooted in grace. It's going to be rooted in forgiveness of sins. It's going to be a covenant relationship where they will have my commands in their hearts. And they will actually desire to follow that. It will be this kind of covenant relationship where you won't have to turn to your brother or sister in Christ and say, know the Lord, because they'll already know the Lord, because God has done a work in their heart. Now we get a a little bit uh, fuller picture of this new covenant relationship in the book of Ezekiel. So turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36, if you would. And in Ezekiel 36... We want to take a look at verses 16 through 28. Once again, another prophet of God, the prophet Ezekiel, and God is showing Ezekiel so that he can tell the people that God is going to make a new covenant relationship with his people one day. And so Ezekiel 36, starting with verse 16, says, The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, When the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries." In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they they profaned my holy name, in that the people said of them, These are the people of the Lord, 
and yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate my holy, the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from your, all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is a work of God causing his people to actually follow him and obey his rules. Verse 28, you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. So here, we see God making this new covenant promise that one day, one day he will do a, a mighty and incredible work to overcome the sinful nature of man. One day he will take of his people away this heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh a heart that longs and desires to follow God and his rules and his commandments. And he will give them his spirit, which will actually empower them to follow his rules and regulations and commandments. Because before this new covenant, they were helpless. They couldn't. They didn't want to follow God's rule and reign, his commandments. They couldn't in their own ability. And God says, I'm going to do a work. I'm going to give you my own spirit. And he will empower you to indeed follow my rules and commandments. Indeed, you will want to live under my rule and reign. You will desire that. You will find it a blessing. And so all of that is this promise that God makes to the people of Israel. Jesus comes on the scene. He says, now the kingdom of God is at hand. John the Baptist even testified that. We looked at that last week in the Gospel of Matthew. John the Baptist said, as he baptized him, this is, this is the one. This is the one that was promised. This is the king that God has promised to bring his kingdom we see Jesus baptized, the Holy Spirit comes down upon him. God's anointing him as his chosen king to carry out his work of bringing his kingdom of grace upon the land. We saw all of that. But these people that Jesus is interacting with in the gospel, 
they're still under that old covenant. Because this new covenant that God had promised had not truly been established and brought to experience yet. And that could only happen through the death of the king. Because you see, their king came to live for them and came to die for them. To take their sins and the just punishment of their sins upon himself. To be buried in a tomb for three days. To rise miraculously to life again after those three days. To live on earth for a short period of time. To ascend back into heaven. The new covenant is about to be established. But it can only be established. This great and incredible promise that God was giving that you will want to live under my rule and reign. I will empower you to live under my rule and reign. You'll desire to live under my rule and reign. Has not been established yet. It's not until we get to the day of Pentecost and we see the Holy Spirit come upon those whom God has chosen and those who believe in the promise that indeed Jesus Christ was the promised king. Indeed, he was the Messiah. Indeed, he did die and raise, was raised to life again. They put their trust in Jesus. They received the gift of the Holy Spirit, this gift that was prophesied about here in Ezekiel, which now empowers them to live under God's rule and reign. They've been now given a new heart, not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh, desiring to live under God's rule and reign. God has put his commands in their heart. And this only comes about through Jesus, through King Jesus, the king who came to bring his kingdom. But the only way he could do that was through his death and resurrection. And now the giving, sending the Holy Spirit to his people. And so as we take a look at this idea of the kingdom of God's grace, we need to note one important thing. It's all about Jesus. And so I want to take a look at a couple areas here where we can clearly see that the kingdom of God's grace is all about Jesus. Um, if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 4, Let's take a look at verses 16 through 21. It says, And he, talking about Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Do those words sound familiar? We just read those same words in Isaiah 61. Goes on to say here in verse 20 of Luke chapter four, and he rolled up the scroll 
gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And so we see this one great truth about Jesus and the kingdom of God. Jesus is actually the kingdom of God personified. As you look at Jesus, as you get to know Jesus, as you learn from Jesus, you're learning all about the kingdom of God because in and of Jesus, we see the kingdom of God lived out in his life as we track through the gospels. So Jesus is the kingdom of God personified. But Jesus is also the hope of the kingdom of God. Let's take a look at 2 Corinthians 120. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says... For all the promises of God find their yes in him, talking about Jesus. That is why it is through him, it is through Jesus, that we utter our amen to God for his glory. It says, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. So, this incredible promise of the kingdom of God's grace, this incredible new covenant promise that we find in the prophets. This, in, this promise of this kingdom to come all finds its yes in Jesus Christ. It is because of Jesus that God can say, now this promise has come true. Now this promise has come to its fulfillment. All of the promises that God has made in the past, all of the promises that God is making now, all the promises that God has made towards the future, all find their yes in Jesus Christ. We're looking at this incredible promise that God has made to his people to bring his kingdom based upon his grace, and it finds its yes in Jesus. So where is the hope for this kingdom? It's found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Jesus is the hope of the kingdom of God. But not only is the kingdom of God personified in Jesus, not only is Jesus the hope of the kingdom of God, but Jesus is also the blessing of the kingdom of God. So let's take a look at Luke chapter 6. And in, in the gospel of Luke there's a lot that parallels what we see in the Gospel of Matthew. You can read through the story and you can see that Jesus came to live upon earth, was born of the Virgin Mary, that um, there's this incredible genealogy, whereas in the Gospel of Matthew, it was from Abraham to Jesus. In the Gospel of Luke, it's actually from Jesus all the way back to Adam. We see Jesus baptized. And now we come to um, Luke chapter 6, and Jesus is preaching a sermon on the kingdom. We'll be taking a look in the Gospel of Matthew at the Sermon on the Mount. 
Here it says Jesus came down from the mountain in the Gospel of Luke. He came down from the mountain to a plain, to a level place, and he's preaching about the kingdom of God. But we saw in Matthew that Jesus went about all places preaching on the kingdom of God. So why would we expect the material here about the kingdom of God to be any different than what we find in Matthew? And so we come to Matthew chapter 6, and we come to verses 20 through 22, 23, and we see what's called the Beatitudes. We see these same Beatitudes brought about in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 5, and they're in more detail, and there are more Beatitudes. The word Beatitude actually just means blessing. So this is God's blessing that he's bringing to his people. And let me read from Luke 6, verses 20 through 23. It says, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples, Jesus, lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets." So Jesus is expressing these incredible blessings that God has for his people. But if you look at these blessings closely, what they're truly describing is Jesus himself. The one who came, who was poor in spirit, who was humble, ruling and reigning in heaven with God, comes to earth as a man born in this miraculous way, but very uneventful birth in the manger. And so he came as one who was poor in spirit. He came as one who mourned, mourned because he saw sin all around him. He saw the devastation and destruction that sin was wreaking upon God's created people. And so he mourned. It says, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. It tells us in the gospel, Jesus didn't have a place to lay his head. He had to rely on others to provide for him food, shelter. Blessed are you when people hate you and they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil. <laughs> Does that sound like blessing? doesn't sound like blessing to me. But what it's expressing is Jesus Christ himself. So we see here that in the kingdom of God's grace, Jesus is the blessing of the kingdom of God because he is who is being described in and through the Beatitudes. John Piper, in his book, God is the Gospel, has this statement. He said, if you can imagine heaven and all that you ever desired being a part of heaven, what would that look like? 
What would it look like for you? I'm asking you this now. If you can imagine what heaven is like, and if you could have everything you ever desired in heaven, what would that look like? Would, would it involve maybe having a certain car? Would it involve having a certain house? Would it involve having a certain relationship? Would it involve having a certain status and prominence? What would, if you could have all you ever wanted in the kingdom of heaven, in heaven itself, what would that look like for you? I know what it would look like for me. But you see, John Piper's statement doesn't stop there. It says, if you could have all you ever wanted in heaven, but Jesus wasn't, wasn't there, would you still want heaven? Would you still want that heaven? If you could have everything you ever wanted, everything you ever dreamed of, everything you ever imagined, if you could have that for all eternity, but Jesus was not a part of that, would you want that? Something we all need to grapple with, to think about. Because we all want things, we all want relationships, we all want a status, we all want to be important. That's true of all of us. But if you could have all of that for all of eternity without Jesus, would that be the kingdom of God to you? Would that be heaven for you? What if, what if when you get to heaven, you don't have all that stuff, but all you have is Jesus? all your dreams, all your hopes, all your desires, everything you longed for for all of eternity, you didn't have that, but all you had was Jesus. Would that be enough for you? You see, Jesus is the blessing of the kingdom of God. It's only in and through Jesus that we can find true joy and peace. He should be all that we need, all that we want. God in his grace, I think, says, you will have some of this other stuff, but Jesus will be first and foremost in the kingdom of heaven because Jesus is the blessing of the kingdom of God. Not only is the kingdom of God personified in Jesus, not only is Jesus the hope of the kingdom of God, not only is Jesus the blessing of the kingdom of God, but as king, Jesus is also the lawgiver of the kingdom of God. So under the old covenant, we see God give his rules and regulations through Moses. Moses gives it to all the people. They all say, yep, we're going to do everything that God wants us to do. And then they fail miserably. God brings judgment upon them. God makes a promise to send his king put everything right for his people. But you see, the kingdom of God's grace isn't going to be without rules and regulations. But they will be rules and regulations and commandments that are based upon God's grace and God's truth. And as we looked at those new covenant promises, God is going to give us hearts that will want to follow those. Do we do it perfectly? No, we don't. Do we follow God's rules and regulations and commands perfectly? Uh-uh. Ask your spouse, ask your friend, ask your brother, ask your sister, ask your neighbor. 
they'll all tell you, nope, they're not doing it perfectly. But the point is, we have this desire to do that. We long to do that because of this new heart that God has given his people. And so the kingdom of God's grace is going to have rules and regulations, but they're going to be rules and regulations that ultimately we're going to want to follow. And he has given his spirit to us that ultimately we can follow them. We know that we don't do it perfectly now, but when Jesus returns to bring the kingdom of God to complete fulfillment on earth, that will be a time. Praise the Lord, that will be a time that we will follow all of his rules and regulations and commandments perfectly. We won't struggle with this sinful nature anymore that wants to fight against God's rule and reign in our lives. That will be the most wonderful time for all eternity for those of us who are saved, those of us who are truly Christians. We don't do that now, but we have a desire to do that. If you're a believer, if you are a Christian, in your heart, God has given you a desire to truly follow him. You may stumble and fall along the way, but God says you're going to get back up and you're going to keep following hard after him. So as king, Jesus is the lawgiver of the kingdom. Let's take a look at John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. In John chapter 1, it says, And the word became flesh, talking about Jesus, his incarnation, his coming to earth as a man. He became flesh, and he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, talking about John the Baptist, his cousin, bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness, from Jesus' fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So we see this truth brought out. The old covenant law came through Moses. That's who God gave it to, to give to the people of Israel. But grace and truth, the law of grace and truth comes through Jesus Christ. A law that we do desire to follow. A law that we don't follow perfectly, but we have a heart to. A law that we're empowered to follow through the giving of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But there's more. We also see next that Jesus is the righteousness of the kingdom of God. Because the truth is, without being declared righteous or right before God, we don't enter into the kingdom of God's grace. The Jews, under the old covenant, thought that they they could gain a right standing before God, what we call righteousness, if they could keep that old covenant law. (laughs) They couldn't keep the old covenant law, so therefore they couldn't have a righteousness before God. Throughout Scripture, we do see 
that God says that he preserved a remnant for himself. So some amongst those of Israel who God set apart for himself, who believed in the promise of this redeemer to come, this one who would come and rule and reign as king and redeem God's kingdom back to himself. There were some within Israel that believed that promise even before there was an Israel. All the way back in Genesis 3.15, we see that promise made. And there were some even back then in that day who believed in the promise of this one to come. But now that Jesus has come, now that Jesus has died, now that Jesus has been resurrected again, and remember, as we're looking through the Gospels, none of that happens until you get to the end of any one of those Gospels. As we look at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, Jesus hadn't died at that point. It was later on in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus died, and we find out about his resurrection and his ascension. But Jesus is the righteousness of the kingdom of God as the king who comes and dies for his people, takes their punishment that they truly deserved upon himself. Let's take a cup, a look at a couple verses that bring out that truth. Let's take a look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we, believers in Jesus Christ, might become the righteousness of God. So the Apostle Paul is writing this truth that Jesus came and took our punishment and in doing so, we gained his righteousness. We are declared righteous before God because of what Jesus did. So Jesus is the righteousness of the kingdom. I want to take a look at one other passage that brings out this truth. Um, So if you would turn to Galatians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 15 through 21. The, the context for the book of Galatians that God wrote through the Apostle Paul is that there were these people who were Gentiles, not Jewish, who had become believers in Jesus Christ and therefore were saved. Jews come along and say, well, it's all good and well that you believe in Jesus Christ. You put your faith in his finished work at the cross and the resurrection. But if you truly want to be one of the people of God, then you need to follow the law of Moses. You need to be circumcised. Ouch. Um, You need to then follow all these other rules and regulations and commandments if you really truly want to be part of the kingdom of God. It's not enough The Jews are telling them just to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul is refuting the argument of these Jews who've come along. And that is the context for what we see here in Galatians 2. So starting in verse 15, follow along with me. It says, we ourselves are Jews by birth 
and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified. The word justified means being declared righteous before God. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified or to be declared righteous by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. No one by works of the law will be declared righteous before God. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For I rebuild what I tore down. I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law then Christ died for no purpose. Christ died for no purpose. Those are strong words. If you believe, he's telling the people here of the church in Galatia, if you believe that you need to turn back to the law, then for you, Christ died for no purpose. Continue, he's trying to encourage them. Continue in your faith in Jesus Christ, in him alone. Don't add to it the law. Don't add to it anything else. Because you see, the only way that we can be declared righteous before God is because of Jesus Christ. His death and resurrection, ascension, the perfect life he lived, Later on in the book of Galatians, a couple chapters later, it says Christ was born under the law because he's born under the old covenant. But it says he fulfilled the law perfectly. He's the only one who has ever lived on the face of this earth who truly did live under God's rule and reign in a perfect way, who truly did follow all of God's rules and regulations and commandments. Jesus Christ in him alone. So we see that Jesus is the righteousness of the kingdom of God. Now all of this is wonderful truth about the kingdom. It's great to have. If, if you're ever playing Bible trivia, you can have some wonderful information about the kingdom of God that you can pull out of your pocket and throw out that answer, say, yeah, I know that. But this has incredible practical application to us. So as the band comes back up, I want to talk about what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us today? Because you see, Back in Jesus' day, and even prior to that, there was this whole idea of discipleship. There was a rabbi who was the teacher, and there was the disciple who was the learner. But before the new covenant comes into play, discipleship was based upon the law of Moses. The rabbi was expected to be an expert in the law of Moses, to know it inside and out. 
and then to live it out rightly before his disciples. We even see in the Gospels that they kind of made their own rules and regulations that made it look like they were living out the rules and commandments of God. It it was all external. It didn't come from the heart. So discipleship under the Old Covenant is all based upon devotion to the Old Covenant law, the law of Moses. Knowing it and living it out, which we know that they can't live it out perfectly. Jesus comes and calls disciples unto himself, those who will follow him and learn from him. And he says, I want you to learn about a new kind of discipleship. This is where we come in. So listen closely. This is important for us. This is the application of all we've looked at here. Because what Jesus calls his disciples to is complete devotion, not to the law of Moses, but to himself. He's saying, I want you to be completely devoted to me. I want you to renounce anything that would get in the way of you being devoted to me. As Jesus is calling some disciples to himself, there's a man that says, hey, Jesus, I want to follow you, but my father just died. Let me go back and bury him. And what is Jesus' response to him? He says, let the dead bury their dead. You come and follow me. Renounce everything else. Become devoted to me. Jesus tells his disciples, take up your cross and walk with me. What is he saying? He's saying, be completely devoted to me. Die to everything else that's gonna keep you from being devoted to me. Another place in the Gospels, Jesus even says, if your mother and your father, your brother and your sister, your friends, your family, if they're getting in the way of you being completely devoted to me, put them aside and follow hard after me. not calling us to renounce our family but he's calling us to be devoted to him in him alone because you see he is the hope of the kingdom he is the blessing of the kingdom he is the righteousness of the kingdom he's the lawgiver of the kingdom but it's a law based on grace and truth and in him the kingdom is personified so my encouragement My challenge to us as the family of River Bluff, all of us that are gathered here this morning, all of those who are watching, is if you're truly a Christian, if you're truly a follower of Jesus, renounce everything that would keep you from being completely devoted to him. And that's what his Holy Spirit in us is calling us to do as well. With that, let me pray. Father God, we thank you for this kingdom of grace that you have brought about through Jesus, this new covenant promise that you made that would replace our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh, that would give us your spirit, that would empower us to live under your rule and reign. We know that we don't do it perfectly, but Father, we know that you've given us that desire to do it. We know that one day Jesus will return and we will follow your rule and your reign completely and perfectly. 
at that time, and we long for that time. So my prayer for us, Father, is that more and more we would become devoted to Jesus as his disciples, to learn from him, to learn about him as the king in this kingdom of grace, that we would renounce all that would keep us from being devoted to Jesus, and that we would do all this for the sake of the greatness of your name and your glory. And all this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.